0: Good morning. We have a very, very special day today. Today is Margaret John Tilstra's 60th wedding anniversary. Yes. Congratulations, guys. What an inspiration for the rest of us, huh?
1: All
0: right, let's begin class with prayer today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to study. We ask that your Spirit will join us, that our hearts will be unified in love and truth. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number 11 in our quarterly worship, and the title this week is In Spirit and in Truth. In Spirit and in Truth. If somebody read the first paragraph for us there, it begins, As We Have Seen. Somebody read that for us, please. As
2: we have seen all quarter, the first angel's message is a call to proclaim the everlasting gospel. At the center of that gospel is Jesus, the incarnate God, God who through forces and means that our minds cannot even begin to grasp, came into this world as a human being.
0: So the first question for our class is: um, as we think about the, the theme all, all quarter about the everlasting gospel, what is the gospel that we are proclaiming? It says the good news about God. Other thoughts?
2: God's character and government.
0: God's character and government. Other thoughts?
2: The truth
3: about him. The
0: truth about him, yeah. Um, is the gospel that we, and I, I mean uh, this group, is, is the gospel we're proclaiming, uh, maybe even we should say our church, is it different than any other Christian gospel? I think so. Should it be? No. Yes. I heard no's, I heard yes's.
2: <laughs> if they're not telling the truth, then it should be.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Think that through. If our gospel, the gospel that we hold and possess, is no different than the Catholic gospel, the Methodist gospel, the Presbyterian gospel, the Episcopalian gospel, why are we here? Why don't we just all come get together and, you know, go to church with them? Do we have something different to present? What do we have that what, what do we have is the everlasting gospel that we believe is, is essential, is important, that the world needs to hear? Is the truth that we have about God different than the truth about God in those other organizations? Yes how? How is it different? How would you explain it to someone? If
2: God is not an uh, angry um Arbitrary and revengeful. revengeful and He's loving and kind and gracious and long-suffering.
3: Christianity pays lip service to that. You'll hear God's love from pulpits uh, all across the country on Saturday and Sunday. But you also hear statements and principles and doctrines that contradict that significantly. And you hear that from our folk as well.
0: So he's suggesting that even though people give lip service and will say, all Christians will say, God is love, that when it comes down to the applicable teachings and doctrines, the things that they describe him doing and will do, they they describe a being who functions on other principles. Is that what you're suggesting? Yes. So how can we as a class be more effective in spreading the gospel, the good news?
3: See how he treats his
0: enemies. See how he treats his enemies. Well, this is one of the doctrines uh, that I think that we uh, would would suggest we have a a gospel message, a good news to present. We teach how God treats his enemies maybe differently than his tradition.
3: Yes. It's by their fruits or by their lifestyle you will know them. And there are wonderful things uh, in your colleagues and friends and neighbors and whatnot, and there's not so wonderful things. And it's imperative that we, as lovers of God, that we express truly love to our fellow men.
0: I couldn't agree with that more, that we have to live and act and treat each other with the principles that we value in God, no question about it. Um, So our, our, our conduct needs to be consistent with the message that we proclaim. And as we get into the lesson for this week about serving that which we worship, we'll see a connection between the God that we worship and how we behave. There is a connection there, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, if we worship authoritarian God, we we may act uh, in an authoritarian manner. Yes, Tina.
1: Well, I mean, I was just talking to a friend of mine who's been an Adventist her whole life, and we were talking about the hurricane, and she said, Well, you know, God has to somehow destroy these wicked cities. I mean, it's going to happen. It's a sign of the end, and he's going to destroy him. So I didn't even know what to say, because I knew if I started with, come on now, you know very well, because we've been down that road already. Because I've already tried with her. And well, it's like, come on, Tina.
0: How would you approach that? I'd like to take them to Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Revelation 7, 1, an angel comes from the east, telling the, three, the four angels holding the four winds, the four, four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the earth and the sea. To hold, 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 <laughs> till the children of God are sealed in their forehead, the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. Now, if you notice, this text has been, been uh, says that these angels have been given power to harm, but what are they actually doing? Holding they're holding, and they're holding back the four winds of strife. So, how is it that God's angels actually harm? By, By no longer holding back that which they're holding back, <laughs> and we see this, of course, in the book of Job. When Satan complained that a hedge of protection was around Job holding in check what Satan would do, and when God let go and let Satan off his leash, Satan began to destroy. And so you can give this, uh, give this pr- biblical perspective, yes, destruction is coming. Why? Because God is using his power to inflict it? Or because God is letting go his restraint? And you can say, well, why would God let go of his restraint? Where's the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit?
2: <laughs>
0: Hearts and minds of men. And when people close their hearts and minds to men, where does the spirit go? He's slowly withdrawn from the earth, not because he doesn't want to dwell here, but because we have shut him out from being here. And thus, the restraining power on the devil becomes less and less, and he has more freedom to destroy. And so you can take this straight back to him and say, you're right, there's terrible things happening. One view would have us believe God is the source of pain and suffering and death, and we must be terrified of him and run because he'll destroy us if we don't do what he says. The other view is, God is the source of life, and when we're we're out of harmony with him, damage and destruction comes, and Satan is the destroyer. So I think we can take that right. So that's, a, that's a great point. Back to the, what we're talking about, the gospel. You know, Is it good news that we get to spend eternity with God if God is this kind of being who will destroy you if you don't do what he says? That's no good news at all. What can we as a class do, seriously do, to more effectively spread the gospel to the world? What tools would you like? What would you need? What would you like to have in your possession to, to be able to more effectively spread this gospel? What can we provide for you? Is there anything you need that you, that you don't have?
1: I wish that somehow you could condense the points that you brought out since I've been coming to the Sabbath school lesson, lesson for four years, Sabbath school class. Condense it down that I could be... Re- to other people. I mean, I understand what you're saying when you say it again. I'm like, yeah, that's right, I've heard it. But I can never repeat it. I can never, it's not, I don't understand it enough to say it to other people.
0: So would it be helpful for the class for us to have a, a, a mini seminar where we actually help people practice and how to present these things?
1: Sure, yeah. absolutely.
0: Okay, all right. Yes?
3: I, 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 will, I speak from personal experience, the, one of the things that has helped me internalize this is actually having to teach it. Yes. Because, uh, you know, one of my mentors in physical therapy said, watch one, do one, teach one. That's and, right. And the, that process of learning, well, if, you, if you find you're going to have to be accountable and, and present this to others, you tend to learn it better. You tend to internalize it.
0: So I'm going to write that down. I'm going to write that down, that uh, mini seminar and teaching. Yes, because in the mini-seminar, if we do that, one of the things we could do is we could have people get up and present and teach and it would be the practice of how do you learn to play the piano except practicing the piano you go to the lesson you hear the instructor but eventually you've got to sit down at the keyboard and practice what you've been told if you really want to be efficient at presenting these truths you've got to practice presenting the truths don't you? every day yes
4: a lot of websites and other material that we get from various sources there are these things called FAQs
0: frequently asked questions
4: and if there was some kind of a resource coming back to maybe what Tina was talking about uh, not necessarily a catechism per se, but just the kinds of questions that often we come up against yeah. mm-hmm.
0: I, I would like you to submit those questions the questions that you 've come up against that would be great. Mm-hmm. We can begin providing uh, you know resources mm-hmm. yes
4: um,
2: you know I like the idea of the seminars and stuff, but for those of us who are a little more on the introverted side, smaller groups would be. <laughs> Better for practicing things.
0: That would be the point of the seminar. At the seminar, we'd break out into smaller groups to have practice time doing this. Yes?
2: Um, it seems like Steps to Christ is a, a con- condensed version of the gospel. And if we had a small um, handout, <coughs> sort of like a little booklet,
5: that kind of explained what, what, we're, what we're trying to tell others.
1: Well, that's what I was referring to. Yes. Something in a condensed form yeah. that we can look
0: Alrighty. at. Excellent. We've got. I've got several things in the works, actually, to, to try and help with that. Yes. a bunch of Bible study
2: guides, where you can actually work with someone step by step, give them the foundation, and then build on that foundation of truth.
0: Good. other suggestions? You
2: know where to find the text that you use. Because you can get Bible study guides that use the wrong text to prove the point.
0: Yeah, <laughs> to know where to find the text uh, texts that help uh, help demonstrate this.
1: Mm-hmm. Not, not that we don't well, much.
0: I'm going to tell you one of the, one of the things that really is helpful when you, regardless of the, the the questions that come, is if you first have in your mind the overview. If you understand what the story is, right. when you understand the story of the Great convert, it says in education that the student should learn to view the Word as a whole, comparing all the various parts to the grand central theme. When you understand that grand central theme with God's character and his methods and his principles at the center, then those questions that come, you, you always filter them through that theme, and, and you can usually come back up with an answer. Yes?
4: Uh, Christ did this for three years with his <laughs> disciples. And if I remember correctly, it wasn't until they really opened themselves to his presence after his ascension,
0: so the, the the presence of the Spirit that they were enabled
4: exactly. Oh. So prayer is the key. course, study and training, mentorship, one-on-one mentorship, but you have to have the open spirit.
0: Perfect. And, let, and as we go through the class today. Let's see if we can identify some things that might be obstacles to us experiencing that as we go through, okay? Good, good point. Yes?
3: Uh, all these are excellent suggestions, obviously, but one that I found very helpful is um, uh, we have a, have a book historically called Answers to Objections, and I think you can almost have a similar one in the thinking of a great controversy view of what are objections uh, to our way of thinking. Uh, Dr. Maxwell, for many years, would go through the Bible book by book, and that's where I first became uh, familiar with this back in the late 70s. And uh, in his book-by-book studies, he would bring out passages which certainly would seem to totally contradict his own views and examine those very carefully and try to put them all within the context of not, uh, not just that particular biblical book, but the whole context of Scripture. His passion was to study book by book to know what we believed and why we believed it and what are the answers and solutions to some of these very problematic passages which seemed not to square totally with, uh, with this view.
0: Yeah, I think that's excellent. And, you know, and the point, the principle was he was trying to put it all into the grand central theme. See, the whole thing, not leave anything out, put it all together. I like that very much. Yes.
1: I think that there's some value to the books and frequently asked questions, things and those types of things to regurgitate what we've heard, but I think we need to learn how to study things out for ourselves, and so I think the more valuable thing is classes on how to study the Bible and how to explain some of the stories that people are going to come to us and say, well, what about this, what about this, what about that, how to read the Bible and study it and explain it to people rather than just regurgitating something that we heard somebody else say.
0: Okay. Yes,
5: As well as that vital connection of when, uh, the in- inviting of the Holy Spirit and to come full circle there, because we're told not to worry about what to say on that day because once you have that relationship connection and the background of study, God will give you that day what you need to say for that, that event in person.
0: So as we consider this and we look, where can we find support for us to move forward? Uh, Dennis emailed me this week uh, with a quote out of Desire of Ages, page 232. And I thought, wow, that really is is so apropos. Let's read this. Desire of Ages 232. The Sanhedrin had rejected Christ's message and was bent upon his death. Therefore Jesus departed from Jerusalem, from the priests, the temple, the religious leaders, the people who had been instructed in the law and turned to another class to proclaim his message and to gather out those who would carry the gospel to all nations. As the light and life of men was rejected by the ecclesiastical authorities in the days of Christ, so it has been rejected in every succeeding generation. Again and again, the history of Christ's withdrawal from Judea has been repeated. When the reformers preached the Word of God, they had no thought of separating themselves from the established church, but the religious leaders would not tolerate the light, and those that bore it were forced to seek another class who were longing for the truth. In our day, few of the professed followers of the Reformers are actuated by their spirit. Few are listening to the voice of God and ready to accept truth in whatever guise it may be presented. Often those who follow in the steps of the Reformers are forced to turn away from the churches they love in order to declare the plain teaching of the Word of God. And many times those who are seeking for light are by the same teaching obliged to leave the church of their fathers that they may render obedience." The people of Galilee were despised by the rabbis of Jerusalem as rude and unlearned, yet they they presented a more favorable field to the Savior's work. They were more earnest and sincere, less under the control of bigotry. Their minds were more open to the reception of truth. In going to Galilee, Jesus was not seeking seclusion or isolation. The province was at that time the home of a crowded population with a much larger admixture of people of other nations than found in Judea. I tell you, I, I felt sad when I read that. Do you think it's true?
4: I think often we want to approach people with something that we have really seen some, something profound in, you know, and, and just immediately sort of give it to them, you know. And, and it's important, number one, to, to know in what spirit you're actually sharing. If, if someone doesn't really want to hear Something profound from from you, or you know, they don't want to be changed somehow. Then you have to you have to recognize that this is not the time. And or you just be friendly and and ask some questions like, can you can you understand why I might be excited or interested in this? You know,
0: I think that's uh, very wise. in what Jesus said about not casting your pearls before swine, unless they turn around you asunder if they're not receptive. Yeah. Wendell,
3: We also need to remember that what our job is versus what the Holy Spirit's job is. Our job is not to convict. Our job is not to make someone ready. Our, our job is to respond to those needs as they become available.
0: Present the truth in love. Right. Leave people free. Right. Yeah, yeah, to the best of our ability. Well, wouldn't we like to do more than just meet once a week for an hour-long discussion as a class? Wouldn't we like to have a bigger impact in our community? To start a, a movement an awakening to get people thinking and searching for truth yeah that's that's what that 's what our passion is to try to stimulate people to leave here and all week long be be asking questions, studying uh, uh, sharing what they 're learning with people in their community and and let this thing spread. second paragraph uh, says think through the, think through what it means that the God who created all that is created became a human. And in that humanity, lived a sinless life and offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. Do you think that sometimes we hear about Christ's incarnation so much that we actually forget to be awed by it? Yeah. What can we do to remember to be just completely in admiration over the the one who created the entire universe humbling himself to become a baby on earth? That's amazing if you think about it, isn't it?
2: When I check out websites like uh, NASA's Astronomy Picture of the Day, for example, has archived 10 or 15 years' worth of, of, of uh, films and various things going out in the universe, finding galaxies billions of years away that they never thought. And to realize this is the very God that created all those galaxies billions of years away, and yet we're one solitary little planet way over here, and God did this for us.
0: And, and where's the attention of the entire universe now? Yeah, we're like, we're like heavenly CNN. Everybody's watching Earth. Isn't that right? Yeah, and, to, and just like CNN, to see the latest bad news. Yeah, it's pretty much always bad news on CNN, isn't it? In Earth, it's not very much good going on, I'll tell you. Okay, it says in the paragraph, it says, the preaching of the cross is, is foolishness to those that are perishing. Um, why is the cross foolishness? to those in the world. What is the prime directive of the world?
2: Self-preservation.
0: Self-preservation. Does it make any sense for those in the world? Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come to me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. Does that make sense to the people who are completely geared towards surviving? No. It's completely foolishness. It's like, what are you guys, Crazy? How do you make sense of that? How does the converted man understand that? What is the principles upon which God designed, built, and constructed His universe to run? Which is the principle of? Self-denial. Sin is principle of giving, beneficence. Free, free. Selfishness destroys and kills. Giving is the, is, the, is the principle of life. And it's only as we die to that need to survive that we actually find life and are put back in harmony with the way God built the universe to run. So only as, as we've been enlightened by the Spirit can we see these things and go against the natural slant of our mind. Sunday's lesson is about Mary and her response to the news that she was going to be the mother of Jesus. I understand that Mary was somewhere between age 13 and 15. And so, ladies in the room, I want you to imagine you're 13 to 16, maybe, 13 to 16, 13 to 15, and uh, you uh, get the news that you're pregnant with God's son. How might you have responded?
2: God asked permission first.
0: Of course he did. The angel came, the angel came, and, and asked for, but, but now you're pregnant. How might you have responded? Would you, how do you think your parents would have reacted when you went and told them, Hey, had an angel visit me? I'm pregnant and I haven't known a man. Mom and dad, all over that.
2: <laughs> yet, all
0: right. How about your fiance? <laughs> right. Of course, an angel had to come and have a conversation with Joseph to help him figure this out. Right. Yeah. How about your your classmates? Do you think she might have been open to some ridicule? She's
1: probably ostracized.
0: How about her her church leaders? Been very very supportive and understanding. Right.
1: No. fellowship
0: She's lucky she wasn't taken out like the woman caught in adultery and stoned, wasn't she? Yeah. yeah. Do, have you have you put yourself at four, I mean, thirteen to fifteen, and thought well, the stress that that must have been for her. Yes.
2: But many girls were looking forward to be the, the the privileged girl to carry the savior.
0: Yeah, there was this expectation, and so many girls, he says, were looking forward to it. So now girl. Do you think? Do you think before Mary any girl claimed that before? <laughs> Yes. I know some have claimed it since. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I
1: going to
2: say the same thing, and I think that she might have thought, why me, Lord? Why would you choose me? Like a, a, an awe over the amazement of it all.
1: Well, can you just imagine, though, how conscientious she would have been from that point on with everything she did, knowing that she was carrying the Savior? What she ate, what she fought, what she I mean, everything that would influence the baby.
0: Yeah, I have patients that would have been so stressed and so worried about doing the wrong thing that they would have just been eaten up with the anxiety. Oh, should I eat that or should I eat this? Should I go here? Or should I go there? Should I go to sleep at nine? Should I go to sleep at ten? Oh, I can't do anything wrong. Can't. Do uh, they would have been freaked out with stress because they they couldn't just be at peace, living their life the way they should live it. You know anybody like this? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> Bottom green section says, How much of the miraculous do you see in your own life? Anybody have a miracle story they want to share with our class today?
6: About two years ago, I have um, ferrets. And one of, I, I was out in the barn doing some cleaning, and I had the ferrets out there to play. And there's a casing that has a um, water line running through it. So I plugged the casing up with plastic bags and towels... And I thought the ferrets would be safe. But one of my ferrets is very mischievous, so she dug all the towels out. And next thing I know, I heard this squeaking sound. I ran over there, and sure enough, she was down inside the casing. And I tried to reach her, but she was farther than down than what I could reach, and there was water in there. And so I panicked, and I didn't know what to do. I couldn't get her out. I tried 911. They said they weren't going to come for a ferret. <laughs> and so um, I called my brother, and he was at home. And so I dropped to my knees, and I prayed, and I said, Lord, you created this whole universe, and you can do anything. I can't get her out, and I can't bear the thought of, you know, because of my stupidity that she's going to die. And so as soon as I... Um, You know, I just told him that I know that he can do anything. And as soon as I was done praying, I heard the neighbor's truck drive in. So I ran across the yard. I felt like I was going to have a heart attack. But (laughs) I ran across the yard, and I told him what had happened. And him and his friend came. And then pretty soon my brother and his friend came. And it took them 45 minutes, but they got her out. They used the end of a broom and got it underneath her. She had hypothermia by the time they got her out. But... When I took her into the vet, you know, they kept her overnight, and she was she was fine the next day. So it was just a miracle that, you know, because I don't know how they could have possibly gotten her out, you know.
0: Don't you think God cares about those little things? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Do you understand we were put on this earth as, as, as human beings to represent the Godhead, and this is a microcosm, and the little animals that we are on the earth to be caretakers for are, are symbolic and representative of, of, of all the, the uh, beings in the universe beneath God who he cares for. And what do you think? What do you, which gap do you think is bigger? The gap in intelligence and, and ca- capacities between you and a ferret or the gap between you and God? Which gap is bigger? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes, we were here to care for. So I think God cares very much and I think he loves a heart that has compassion for the animals. I love that. As we go through, let's look at Monday's lesson... It talks about how we serve that which we worship, and the bottom paragraph says, Thus, we see a crucial point about worship. It is hard to imagine someone who worships the Lord in faith, in surrender, in humility, in love, in fear, at the same time serving other gods, whatever form they may come in. Worship, then, can be a protection for us against idolatry. The more we worship the Lord, even in our private devotion, the better protected we are against self-serving, or serving self, sin, and all the other forces vying for our service. And it is no question... Healthy worship, healthy worship is protective, it heals the mind, it it cleanses the conscience, it ennobles the reason, it gives us better discernment, better capacities to think, better ability to see evil as it approaches. No question that healthy worship does that. Unhealthy worship, however, does just the opposite. It distorts the reason, it sears the conscience, it makes us more vulnerable to deception and exploitation. So the question is, you know, not are we worshiping, what are we worshiping? And this suggests if you're sincere and committed that, you, that you're, you're good. What do you think? you sincerely wrong. You can be sincerely wrong. Can people be a member of the church, baptize, take communion, attend weekly services, hold church office, tithe, an offering, and still be an idolater? Yeah. Yes. I, I heard two yeses. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's important. Christ himself said, They will come to me in the end of time and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We perform miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. Notice, they're doing this in the name of Christ, not in the name of Buddha or Hare Krishna. And he says, Get ye hands, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So, what can we do to enhance our ability to know God for who he really is? What can we do? She says, spend more time with the Bible and His Word.
2: Spend less time turning off our minds.
0: Oh, I like that. She says, less time turning off our minds. You know, one of the virtues taught in much of Christianity is that if you have faith, you don't need evidence. You don't need to think. You just believe. It's dangerous. That's one of those things that actually damages the mind over time. All right, Tuesday's lesson, the first paragraph, it says, As we've seen numerous times, Even in the intricate and deep forms of worship that the Lord has instituted for Israel, it was not the forms alone that the Lord cared about. The forms and traditions and liturgy were all means to an end, and that end was a a person surrendered in body and mind to his or her creator and redeemer. It is much easier, however, to make one's religion a series of formulas, traditions, and outward acts than it is to daily die to self and surrender in humility and faith to the Lord. This fact surely goes a long way in explaining why the Bible spends a lot of time dealing with those whose hearts were, whose hearts aren't right with God, regardless of how correct their forms of worship are. I, I think it's right on. That is well said. Well said. So as we think about that, what do you think about our forms, our rituals? and our liturgy, do they enhance our relationship with God or have they become an obstacle to experience what God wants for his people? Is that a fair question to ask? God gave them all these things in the Old Testament. Did they eventually become an obstacle? Yes. yes. So we're not suggesting that necessarily the rituals and, and things are inherently wrong. The question is, can they in time become an obstacle? Have they? Has that happened in our church? Could we use the New Testament as a guide for what God wants for his church? Could we use that? Well, what did the church in the New Testament look like? And how do, how do we look compared to the New Testament church? Let me ask you this question. And, I, and, and, and feel free to raise your hands to this question. A couple of series of questions. How many of you believe you are qualified to be leader of the church? I'm glad to see a few hands. Thank you. Yeah. How many? Yeah. How many believe you are ordained of God to be church pastor? I
1: know you're going to say yes,
0: but. (laughs) How many of you believe you're authorized of God to baptize and lead out in communion? A few more hands going up. Yeah. What would the New Testament say about whether you are or are not authorized to do all these things? Yes. What about our church tradition today? What do you think it does to the body of believers to disempower you and take away from you the authority that God has given you? Think it through, people. Does our organization, our liturgy, our traditions empower the body of Christ or disempower them? Yes.
6: There are many small churches where the...
2: Uh, membership is only 15 to 20 or 30, and they all have to participate in one way or the other to make the worship happen.
5: Um,
2: I have a friend who attended here a couple of Sabbaths ago, and he pre- he was getting ready to preach, and he preaches almost every Sabbath, but he's not an ordained minister. And um, I think.
0: Time out. I've got to interrupt. Time out. Time out. Time out. He's not an ordained minister. Right. What does that mean?
2: It means that he's a laity who's taking on. Wait,
0: wait, wait. Time out. Time out. Okay. okay? He's a laity. He's a, what does that mean?
2: He's a, he's a follower
5: of okay. Jesus who so, takes on the responsibility of preaching.
0: Right. And where does this idea of ordained and laity come exactly from? True. What does the New Testament say about whether he's ordained to preach?
2: He doesn't need to be.
0: Well, what, is, what is the ordination to preach? What is the empowering, according to the New Testament, uh, who are the priests? Discipleship. Who are the priests in God's church today? According to New Testament. Okay. So if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've opened the heart to the indwelling of the Spirit, are you not a priest of God? Yes. Yes. Is there a division between the priesthood and the laity as God designed the church? No. No. So do you understand our tradition is disempowering you? It's making you powerless. It's putting you on the bench. It's putting you as a spectator. It's making you sit in the stands and observe the professional trained spiritual worship leaders. Professional orators, professional musicians that get up there to entertain us and we become spectators and we go to church, we get a response of our emotions, we leave and think we've been spiritually filled. And we've been castrated from our ability to go out and serve as as this priest. So we're asking, in the earlier question today, what can we do as a people to spread the gospel? Are there barriers that keep and interfere with the Holy Spirit? Was we talked about, we have to have the Spirit come upon us to empower us. Are there things that we do in our tradition, our belief systems, our organization that actually obstruct the Spirit's ability to empower us because we believe we shouldn't be empowered? We are the laity. We're not ordained. We shouldn't be teaching. We shouldn't be preaching. We need to leave that to the professional. What can, the, what can the Spirit do if that's what you're thinking? Over here, yes.
3: I just want to say I think there is some encouraging news in our church. We formerly lived in North Carolina, and my brother is still living there, and he is now recognized by the Carolina Conference as the pastor of their church uh, with no ordination and so on. And he tells me there are other churches doing that in the, in the Carolina Conferences.
0: So he can, he, he can now hold uh, conference office? He can be the conference president. I
3: don't know all the details, but he is the pastor of their church or the you know, it, I'm sure the title is lay pastor or something like that. Can it. he perform weddings?
0: Will they let him baptize?
3: I don't know that he personally does baptize, but I believe that yeah. he, he knows that he can. Any elder yeah. can
5: perform weddings. Yeah.
0: Oh. Yeah, what about women? Are women priests in the in the New Testament church? Yeah. Yes.
1: Why do we need a conference to tell us what we can and cannot do? What he was doing
0: Great question. Is, is the church of the New Testament organized with top-down authority, or is it organized with a, a, a body, with Christ as the head, and a body of believers that minister to each other? Think about church today, guys. Do we actually come to this organization where we are real and genuine, or is it a grand theater that we come with our with our costumes? It's a it's a it's a, 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 a masquerade ball. We come with our masquerade on, pretending that everything is virtuous and righteous in our life. Or do you come to church and say, "Brother, I've been struggling with pornography. I need some help. I've got an addiction, and I need some help." Or do you put on your face and pretend everything is righteous in your life because you know if you actually were genuine and honest, you would be kicked out?
2: And then I have to ask the question, are Adventists getting if they are not?
5: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes, way in the back, yes.
5: In realizing that the reason for us being here on the earth is to be able to reestablish that right relationship with our Creator and our Redeemer and our Friend. And then to be able to have that relationship become the center of our lives and the center of our then sharing with others. Um, Anything that obscures blocks or gets in the way of our establishing that relationship with our Heavenly Father and with Jesus Christ is a stumbling block, whatever that something is. Um, I don't think that has to take away from wisdom and organization, but it does have to, in each one of us, Make sure that we maintain our focus on what is the true meaning and what is the true reason for being here.
0: Does our organization break down the dividing wall between believers and bring us to a unity, the at-one meant unity of heart, where you know and are known because we all know Jesus Christ? Look at the first-century church. How did they treat each other? How did they treat each other? as family, everybody helping everybody, is that what we experience in our organized churches of America, generally? No. We're we're afraid to actually be honest with our problems, aren't we? I know. In my experience, it's dangerous to go out there and be honest with your problems. Why is it that way? I'm going to suggest to you because we've, we've bought into a system that did not come from the New Testament. We bought into a system that came from imperial Rome in its organization and its hierarchy. Top-down authoritative leadership, splitting between the royalty and the peasants, the clergy and the laity, disempowering each of you from your role as God has chosen each of you to be a priesthood amongst the believers, disempowering you from going out there and ministering as the Holy Spirit empowers you to minister to one another. And I'm going to suggest that if we really want to be a power in the world, We really want to be the the, the power that Paul talks about. The good news is the power. The gospel that, that, as Wendell said earlier, we have to not just speak it, we have to live it. We have to begin loving each other and being honest and genuine with each other. But see, that's scary. Think about that, guys. Think about actually letting yourself be known in this room. Isn't it uncomfortable? Why is it uncomfortable? It's not uncomfortable when you know you're loved. It's only uncomfortable when you're afraid you won't be loved. And what have we been? What have we been conditioned to do? Isn't it sad that people are more genuine at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting than they are at church?
1: Because there they don't expect perfection, and here they do.
0: And where did the idea of perfection come from?
1: A wrong concept of God.
0: No the wrong concept of God. What well, we talked about in last week's class: accepting the the, the little horns distortion of God's law. Not not the change in the two. That was the diversion. The change that is universally accepted that God imposed his law upon his creatures rather than his natural design, his law upon which he built his universe to run. Having accepted that change, what do we do? We have to conform to the rules. We have to obey or else he'll punish. It's all a big distortion. So I'm wanting to challenge each one of us To become that priest of God. To to reclaim what God has given you, has authorized you as a believer in Him. To embrace and open your heart to the Spirit. To begin doing your priestly ministries and not wait for an organized conference to tell you it's okay. What do you all think? Am I too radical?
4: The reason we have, let's be more realistic here, and let's talk about our, our organization, our church, Seventh-day Adventist. The reason we have pastors is because if you do not go to the seminary and then preach according to what they, you've been taught, you will not be a preacher. If I stand up in that pub and I start preaching and I say something against Ellen allergy white, I don't think I'd be welcome.
0: Where did seminary training come from? If you actually look at the history of professional paid speakers, which is what we have in our church, we have professional elite class of trained public speakers. This comes from the Greek oratory the Greek history and the Greek culture and the Roman culture, where they had professional trained speakers of an elite class that would go to seminary or, or, or training in order how to be public speakers, and they would come and be entertained by these public speakers. The early church, for the first 300 years in the church, up until Constantine, had no professional paid clergy. Read your New Testament. Paul did not accept to pay. Paul and all of the other speakers that, and teachers that went out for the church had, were completely independently uh, employed, providing their own means and resources. And they were endowed with the gifts of the Spirit to speak. And it says Paul wasn't necessarily an eloquent speaker. But he went out to spread the gospel. We've got this idea that that only the the, the trained seminary professor is able to go out and minister the gospel uh, to people. And I'm going to suggest to you that is a foreign concept to the New Testament. Every believer is a minister. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 14... What shall we say then, brothers? Fourteen twenty-six. When you all come, when you come together, everyone has a hymn, or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Wait. When you come together, the ordained minister has an instruction. No, everyone, everyone, the whole body is worshiping together. Or uh, Colossians three twelve through sixteen. Therefore, as God's chosen people. Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Who is the New Testament telling us who's to be doing the teaching and admonishing? The body of believers. We're to help and admonish and teach each other. Yes.
4: When it's set up that way where you have to have a certain level of training, a certain level of skill at speaking, puts, it gives more power to the individual that has those things. And instead of giving the power to the Holy Spirit to convict, it puts the power on the man rather than on God, on the skill of the speaker. I agree with
2: what's being said here. But if it weren't for the people in the pews, that wouldn't be happening anyway. Because we'd rather pay the guy to go out and do our work for us. <laughs>
0: yes, and so, there, so it's a collusion. It's a collusion. We work together. It's exactly right. That wouldn't happen if we weren't willing to surrender or abdicate our responsibilities to someone else. Think this through, guys. What does it do to the individual, to you, to the believer, for you to teach someone else? Russell already said it. What does it do to you, the believer, for you to minister to someone else? You see, when we actually function in the role that God has called the believers to function in, it is an edifying, transforming, developing process in the person who's ministering to others. When we are taken out of that role, it it causes our our abilities, our minds, our hearts to to wither and to stagnate. We become very self-referenced. Church is about what we can get out of it. I don't go to that church because I don't get anything out of it. I don't like the music there. It doesn't speak to me. The church is about the entertainment that I can get for me. And if it doesn't entertain me, if it doesn't provide what I need, then I don't go there. Rather than church as an opportunity for us to give of ourselves, to minister and bless and uplift others. And in giving, the more you give, the more you receive. receive. This is the big, another big delusion that we have been tricked into through tradition. Through tradition. Yes, I saw a hand in the back.
5: I'm coming back again, though, to element based of that relationship with God and that, uh, that being the crux of everything. I don't think the organization has to be a stumbling block, but it certainly needs a call to reality, as well as for each one of us not to be satisfied being an observer in an arena, but to be one of God's mighty warriors out there sharing what we know, the relationship that we have, and not being satisfied with um, the incompleteness of not sharing the God we know with those around us.
0: Don't misunderstand my comments. I am not suggesting that we should go dismantle the organization. I am suggesting we should, we should reclaim our roles as priests of God and, and not, uh, not surrender our responsibilities and the authority that God has given each one of us to fulfill to a paid professional clergy. Amen. That's what I'm suggesting. Okay? Alright, Wednesday's lesson. Bible verse at the top, it says, but the hours come, it now is, when the true worshipper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship Him. And I think, what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? Do you know that this, this uh, idea of spirit and in truth has been become very mystical? This word spirit has a mystical interpretation through much of Christendom, which has no basis in the Bible, but comes from, again, Greek mythology and pagan concepts. The word spirit is the, in the Greek is the word pneuma. We get pneumonia and pneumatic tire. It means wind or air. And it has four really different meanings actually in the New Testament. It can mean literally the wind. The wind blows where the wind blows. Okay? It can mean the, the Spirit of God. It can mean a mystical entity called a ghost when Jesus came approaching them on the water. And they were all terrified. He says, It's I it's not it's not a ghost. Okay? Pneuma, same word. And it can mean your intelligence, your heart, your your, your. I'm with you in spirit, truth. Your individuality, your personhood. So, spirit and truth. Listen to what Alomite says in um, count, uh, Council's Education, page seventy-four. The teacher from heaven. Of course, that's Christ, the teacher from heaven. No less a personage than the Son of God came to rev- came to earth to reveal. Listen to these words came to earth to reveal the character of the Father to men that they might worship him in spirit and in truth. Christ revealed to men the fact that the strictest adherence to ceremony and form would not save them. For the kingdom of God was spiritual in its nature. Christ came to the world to sow it with truth. He held the keys to all treasures of wisdom and was able to open doors to science and reveal undiscovered stores of knowledge were it essential to salvation. He presented to men that which was exactly contrary to the representations of the enemy in regard to the character of God and sought to impress upon men the paternal love of the Father who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. He urged upon men the necessity of prayer, repentance, confession, and the abandonment of sin. He taught them honesty, forbearance, mercy, and compassion enjoining upon them to love not only those who loved them, but those who hated them, who treated them despitefully. In this, he was revealing to them the character of the Father, who is long-suffering, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and full of goodness and truth. Those who accepted his teaching were under the guardian care of angels who were commissioned to strengthen, to enlighten, that the truth might renew and sanctify the soul." What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? What does it mean? Did you notice three, three times she, she brought one theme, one thread through three times in this passage? What was the thread she, she, she said three times? Character. The truth about the character of God. This is the whole deal. This is the whole deal. Why is the, the character of God the central issue? Of course, if you want a scripture for that, 2 Corinthians 10 through 5, we wage war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. Yes.
2: Well, just on a very simple level, I would say like the spirit is like your emotions, like love and caring. That so that you have that for God, or you're representing that part of God. And then the truth is, or the intellect, the knowledge, the, all the history that's gone on, all that's gone, all the teachings that go on. So to have that is true too. Those two things sort of go together: the emotions and the intellect.
0: So your heart and your mind together, spirit and truth, heart and mind together in its unified adoration, love, affection and commitment to God. Um, What happens then, why is God central? What happens actually to a person, an individual, when they actually come to see God as he truly is? What impact does that experience, that knowledge have on them?
4: As we behold, we become changed.
0: Trust. Yes, trust. We're one to trust. Lies and... What happens to fear? Fear of God. What happens to fear of God when you see him as he is in Jesus? Are you running from him? As, soon as Adam sinned, he ran and hid because he was afraid. Who was he running from? Did he need to be running from God? Was God his enemy? No. No. This is our natural instinct we're running from. Him. Christ came to win us back. Yes?
2: Seeing God as he really is also shows us as we really are. We have less tendency to deceive ourselves. If we really see him, we see more clearly the difference between him.
0: Us. and us. And when we see the difference between him and us, how do we respond to that? Do we respond with guilt, inadequacy, feeling worthless, I'm no good, I need to just forget it, how could he even care about me, I'm so awful, I'm so sinful, I'm just so disgusting, I'm just wasting his time. I mean, when we see that difference between him and us, how do we respond? He
2: does have different reactions, that's why you always see a gap of two people. You see the, the people who who realize this is the difference, but I don't want this difference. I want to be like you, and you're the way of accomplishing that. And you have people say, you know, I am too bad for that. I don't really care about that direction. I want to go a different direction. So all through the Bible, there's only ever two groups of people.
0: Dennis?
4: I like the evidence this displayed of how God deals with people who are in disharmony with Him. Because that makes me love Him even more, because He's still kind, gracious, loving, seeking to heal and fix.
0: And do you see the importance of presenting the truth? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Woman caught in adultery, drug before his feet, neither do I condemn you. Versus the other idea that if you are out of harmony with him, he'll use his power to torture you and kill you. You see, do you want to go to a doctor who if he finds something wrong with you, will torture and kill you? No, nobody wants to go to a doctor like that. Yes. Yes.
4: Kind of following up a little bit with what Linda said, when we see God as he truly is, it helps us to, to know who we really are and to, to love him because he loves us. And we also see others as they are, not people to be feared, not, not, not within this survival of the fittest, I want to claw my way to the top, but as going through this sinful world together.
0: No, that's exactly right. We have compassion. We're able to share. We're able to hopefully share our knowledge of what a gracious and good God is with somebody who's still afraid of God.
4: I can only be at peace in a relationship with God. My life is tumultuous otherwise. I have no safety, no conscience without Christ and the relationship with the Son and the Father. There's nothing there. If His Spirit's not within me,
0: I'm lost. Any goodness we see in us is only for the work of the, of the Spirit working in us. I, I like it. Very well said. Uh, last paragraph, Wednesday's lesson, it says, At the same time, God called upon His true worshipers to worship Him in truth. God has revealed His will, His truth, His law, truth that we are expected to believe and obey. True worshipers will love God and from that love seek to serve Him, obey Him, and do what is right. Yet, how can they know what is right without knowing the truth about faith, obedience, salvation, and so forth? The idea that beliefs do not matter, that only a sincere spirit matters, is misguided. It is only half of the equation. Correct beliefs do not save, but they will give us a greater understanding of the character of God, and that should make us love and serve Him all the more. I'm thinking about that balance between the, the hard attitude and correct beliefs. How many, when Christ appears in the clouds, when the sky unfolds, when, when we're being transformed in the twinkling of the eye, the, the righteous are coming out of the graves, we're winging our way to heaven, how many at that moment will have 100% correct understanding of everything in the Bible? Okay. So having right beliefs, ultimately, the 100% right beliefs on all these things, is not what's required for us to be going into heaven. Um, and, and it's important to, to recognize that because I've had people very insecure because they, they might have some, some, you know, something wrong in what they're believing in scripture. So what is then essential for salvation? Correct beliefs or a new heart and right spirit?
4: A lot of Christ.
0: And, and what? And I want to get down to how this, how this comes down to our attitude toward our beliefs. When somebody has a new heart and a right spirit, they have a heart that loves the truth that wants to grow in the truth, that wants to advance in the truth. They have a heart that says, hey, I'm finite. Uh, you know, I, This is what I currently understand, but I'm open to be corrected. I'm open to be instructed. I'm open to have my beliefs change and modified as more truth, more light comes to my mind. Uh, they do not take the position of defending the old traditions. They do not take the position of saying, hey, we've got 500 years of Christian thought that we need to protect and defend ourselves against. They do not close their mind to advancing truth. That position is a heart that's not open to advancing truth. And it says in Thessalonians, with the wicked perish. Why? Here's a quote. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and thus be saved. They don't have a heart that loves to grow in truth. And think this through. In what field of study? In what field of study in this, in this world, except theology, is it a, a virtue to not grow in the truth? every field of study, we have inherently medicine, uh, science, biology, architecture, whatever it is, we have a knowledge to grow in our understanding of whatever it is, the principles we hold. Now we want more. We want to develop those things and expand. But only in theology do we say, hey, this is what the fathers have believed for 500 years and we need to hold to that. It's backwards. It's, it's destructive. It shuts our mind down to the advancing light. Truth is uh, a was was present truth. If, you're te- if we're teaching truth that Martin Luther taught, it's 500 years. It's not present. It's not present truth. We should have developed and advanced in that truth. Now, how would you like to go to a doctor who is, who's practicing medicine like they did in the 16th century? <laughs> well, let me tell you something. Theology is about healing. The truth about God is about healing your mind, healing your soul. And if you're holding to 500 year old theories, it's like, it's like going to a doctor to heal your body with 500 year old medical practices. And this is why another reason why the church is so sick. So I'm suggesting we have to have a heart that loves the truth, that's willing to grow in truth. And, and we, we all understand and develop in different places and different, different um, coming from different perspectives, and we may not see it the same way. It's okay. If we all have a heart that's willing to grow and open to new ideas, willing to investigate, and one of the passages I love from Ellen White, she says, truth can afford to be fair. It loses nothing by close investigation. You see, I don't, I'm not afraid to have my beliefs examined and looked at as long as we're willing to look at them with evidence and be reasonable And because I admit I'm finite. I want my ideas to be challenged. I want to develop them further. I don't want to rest in what I knew when I was 20. Do you?
2: I had a non adventist friend come and visit our Sabbath School several times over the course of the past several years, and she said, "You guys just study so deeply. You know, once is the Jesus loves me kind of thing." So I pointed out to her this uh, this text in, in Proverbs 24, starting with verse three, says, "By wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established." But through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. I told her, I don't think it saves you necessarily to know more and more and more, but it fills you with God's rare and beautiful treasures that you wouldn't otherwise have.
0: Let me be clear. We are not saved by knowledge. Right. We're saved by Jesus Christ. However, a heart that is in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is a heart that loves truth and wants to grow in its knowledge and understanding. Yes, and last comment.
2: When Jesus was here, and people were trying to decide if he was God or if he was not, he told them how to discern that. If you're seeking to know the Father's will, you'll know the truth. And as each one of us seek to know the truth, we're all different individuals, and as we come together, the piece of truth that you share and the piece of truth that I share is going to give
6: us a more complete picture truth.
0: Thank you. Thank you. That's why we minister to each other as a body. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not abandoned us, but you sent your spirit to dwell in your spirit temple. We open our hearts and minds to you and ask that you will come in to enlighten, to transform, to ennoble, to cleanse, and to empower your people here that we can be and fulfill the purpose you've called us for, to be your priests on earth, to take the good news about who you are to the world, that our lives will be shining lights for you, the world will be lighted, and we will see you face to face very soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.